You've hit play on the Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. I don't know if you know this, Andrew, but my favorite decade of films happens to be the 80s. It's a great decade. It is. Uh, it's very stylish. Maybe a little too much style over substance at times. But hey, keeps it from being boring. Usually. One of the most notable genres of that decade, I would argue, is the teen comedy. I'm sure you've probably watched plenty of films from this genre in that decade. I think I've watched my fair share. I wouldn't say I've watched more than the average person. I've watched some of the classics, like, you know, of course, um, specifically like Ferris Bueller or Breakfast Club, stuff like that. Those John Hughes movies, they take up a lot of my list of teen comedies from that decade that I enjoy. He made really good ones, and he knew how to make a teen film. He knew how to do the sensibilities and speak to his audience. Even uh, decades later, I can still watch his stuff and feel some kind of connection with the characters. But today, we're going to examine movies from the 80s. We might say are targeted at a teenage audience, but they go against the grain from what's typical of that decade because they have female characters, and these characters are the leads of the movie. I was trying to, in preparation for this show, find other movies that have fair portrayals of women, especially as the protagonists, and there really aren't that many examples. It's usually a guy's genre. Besides the two we're going to talk about, there's Valley Girl from 1983, Desperately Seeking Susan. 1985. Uh, that one had Madonna. Really, it was a, a male-centric decade as far as the juvenile humor went. Boys and blue humor kind of go hand-in-hand hand anyway, so maybe that was part of the reason for it. I think especially in the teenage years, yeah, I would definitely agree with you. There are a couple of extra gems that exist for people that want to switch it up and just see stronger female characters in their teen comedies. Let's just dive into the first movie, which is Night of the Comet from 1984. Andrew, had you seen this before this episode? Uh, no, I had heard about it maybe, like legitimately, like maybe two weeks before this episode it was the first time I even heard of the movie. I actually haven't seen either one of these films uh, before this episode. Yes, I was uh, a bit of a pig this episode because I love the 80s so much. I just needed somebody willing to go on this journey with me. Typically, I do like to have the guest uh, serve up a movie of theirs as well. But, you know, I'm, I'm getting toward the end of this first season of this show, and I wanted to make sure I got these two in there. So thank you for indulging me. Well, no problem, because I also know that my pick for this week was going to be Ferris Bueller. That's very, very entry-level. I guess my second choice would have been War Games, but I don't know if you could count that, you know? You're just such a big Broderick fan. 
I am. I even liked his um, 1990s Godzilla, if I'm being honest with you. <laughs> Since you hadn't seen either of these movies, Night of the Comet, was there a point in the movie where you started to tip positively or negatively from a neutral point as you were going on? Like, how many minutes in? I think I was interested in it from the beginning because you could tell it was going to be something kind of unique. It was kind of, um, I don't want to say a neutral ride all the way through. It was enjoyable, but I think I might have to watch it a second time to like form a full opinion on it. There was a lot going on in it. It's kind of a short film from what I remember, but it packs in a lot of different things into one movie. It's a real genre mashup, too. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a, there's a bit of a whiplash element going on with it. Not like in a bad way, just kind of, it takes you for a ride. Give us a little short description of the premise. So it's this movie about uh, two valley girls. Sam, who's the younger one, and then Regina, a.k.a. Reggie, who's the older sister. One night where there's a comet coming over the planet, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, let's watch the comet, you know, like an Independence Day. Remember when everyone's like, welcome to Earth, and then they get blown up? Yeah. I kind of got flashbacks to that watching this film. Interesting. I mean, we know that what's going to happen, and they're all going to die. People have either turned to dust or zombies because of this comet. And the girls are just trying to find other survivors and get on with their lives. They run into Hector, played by, uh, what is it, Shadoke from Star Trek Voyager. <laughs> That's where it kind of just gets a little weird from there because scientists get involved. That's where the genre mashup starts happening and it gets a little wonky. If you had to say that this movie, what part of it was more one genre than the others, what would you uh, characterize it as? I would say it's more of an action flick. It has some of those gender-swapped yet stereotypical action parts, you know, like you have these two valley girls who, where it's, um, if I remember correctly, it's very, like, their dad's very military and taught them to shoot guns at a very young age. And there's this scene where they're shooting, like, I think, like a Mac 10 or something. Yep. They were blowing things away with their guns, like, ah, this is nothing. This doesn't have any power because they're just so used to weapons. Yeah, and they're practicing on uh, cop cars, right? Yeah, it's empty cop cars. And that's why I would say it's more action because it has, you know, the first zombie encounter, although it does have a horror element to it. She escapes on a motorcycle. And there's explosions and all sorts of stuff. It has horror elements because of the zombies and mad scientists. But it's definitely, I'd say, more of an action flick. The action aspect of it is definitely there, although it feels like it suffers a little bit in that regard because they didn't have a huge budget for it. So I wonder if they did have more of a budget, how many more action scenes or explosions they might have included. There is sort of a, a horror flavor to it, a little bit like Omega Man. If it was going for more of a horror thing, then I wish they had a few more zombie encounters, because there really aren't that many, are there? 
No, um, the most memorable one for me was the very first one, because you see what kind of zombie it is. They're not like the zombies are just, you know, drooling idiots. It's, you know, the zombie spoke. It seemed like somewhat intelligent. So it was just kind of bluish looking with like the sores and everything. I always do appreciate a different type of zombie. I think that's one thing that this movie had going for it was they were speaking zombies, so they weren't just mindless killing machines. What about the female characters in this stood out to you? What I kind of appreciated about it is I felt that although there was that element of a stereotype to it, to them being kind of valley girls, especially Sam, who's kind of the ditzier one, them being from military families isn't necessarily breaking a stereotypical mold, but it's the fact that they were from military families and they were taught, all right, yeah, we we know how to use machine guns. And so that's what was kind of refreshing about it is they acknowledged it, they shot things up, we moved on. And on the simplest level, at least it helps explain how they're pretty capable as the movie goes on and they're survivors of this apocalypse. Yeah. If their parents are gone a lot, then they do have to be self-sufficient. And that just only adds to their idea that they can be so capable at their young ages. How did you uh, feel about the portrayal of an empty L.A.? It was a little too open. There weren't a lot of cars. It was a little unbelievable to me. Because it's empty. I mean, sure, of course there's going to be no people. They're all dust. But the amount of open street, I think, was the thing that got me. Because not everybody would be home parked. And even if everyone was home and parked, there's still a lot of street parking in the city of L.A., There are just not a lot of cars. And maybe that's where, you know, that's the budget speaking right there because they can't afford all these different cars. I mean, the red look in the sky, that was very 80s when the comet passed by and everything kind of went digital noise in terms of like, this is how the comet's affecting the world. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, like the MDLA was cool, except for the fact that there'd just be more cars in the middle of the street stop, you know, a bunch of accidents pile-ups and stuff like that. There are still uh, one or two shots where you can see people, but it's not too obvious. You know, it's one of those things where, um, like seeing a boom mic in a sitcom, you know, you just, you can miss it if you're not paying attention. It's always kind of working against the production that as an audience, I think there are a fair amount of people that want to find the blemishes you know, show that, oh, I know how you guys did this, or you didn't do this the way you should have. Yeah, I do agree with you. And it is unfair that lower budget films, I think, get more scrutiny than the big budget ones, because it's like we want to see more the proof being in the pudding. Both of these films we're doing today, they feature sibling relationships. I do not have any siblings, but Andrew, you do. Was there anything about the sisters here that resonated with you as far as their familial relationship? I would say kind of no, not really. Because I have an older brother, and I just think in general, I I know it's just, I don't mean to make it sound like a cop-out, but 
I think sister interactions are a lot different than brother interactions. I think that if my brother and I were in this type of situation, I mean, we'd be cracking wise, sure, um, like they are, because they're kind of like those fast-talking teens that crack good jokes. But it's also like you have two completely different characters, where you have Regina, who's more just kind of a, I'll say, a straight shooter, you know, pretty smart chick. And then you have Sam, who I kind of remember being more ditzy, and I don't want to say clueless, but the one who's kind of the more like, ah, shucks type of character, you know? She's in denial for a good part of the movie. Yeah, the denial is one thing, but she kind of still had a little bit of a ditziness to her. For me, it didn't really ring too true, but that's just, you know, every sibling relationship's different. I thought it was pretty cool that we do get a fair amount of backstory with them before things even hit the fan. It kind of made me wish I had a sibling when their stepmother wants them to both show up for their comet party and Regina wants Samantha to cover for and lie for. You just wanted a partner in crime. Heck yeah, it's much harder when you're the only one. True. I can imagine. But we also, in that scene with the cruel stepmom, damn, Samantha and her get into a little tizzy, and they actually fight, don't they? They throw punches. Samantha gets knocked down. It was an uncomfortable sequence, for sure. There are a few moments like that in this movie they get gross in a couple of spots, whether it's the domestic abuse or uh, a little later on, you're mentioning the first appearance of the zombies. For a movie that is PG-13, they don't have really any gross-out gory moments, but there are a few things that do come off as very unsettling, such as the first appearance of zombies in general in this thing. Regina spends the night at the movie theater with the projectionist, and he has to go do something early in the morning. And he gets a knock on the door, and he opens it, and the zombie pulls him out and just starts hitting him with a wrench. And then later, when Regina goes out to see what happened, we see the zombie come out from some trash, and he's just holding, like, a chunk of meat. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's like... Yeah, there was some time between when the projectionist was assaulted and when Regina walked into the alley. You kind of wonder, like, wow, I kind of want to see what the zombie did to him. I do believe there's always merit in using your imagination. But, uh, I mean, obviously the guy was just wrecked if he already had him in cutlets. Kind of reminds me of... uh older video games where they couldn't get super detailed and you might blow apart an enemy and they just turn into chunks of meat. Yeah. (laughs) Is there a performance in this that you really like? I like the main character's performance. Maybe because I have seen her in, if I remember correctly, she's the lead in Nightmare on Elm Street. Wait a minute, was she in Nightmare on Elm Street? I think... I think you might be wrong about that. Well, she looks like the lead in Nightmare. Huh. I'm trying to think what else I've seen her in. Because I haven't... Oh, I know where I've seen her now. Weekend at Bernie's? 
Yeah. <laughs> it's weekend at Birdies. Like, <laughs> how did I get the two confused? That's crazy. These 80s ladies just look the same to me. It's that hairstyle, man. It is. That's embarrassing. <laughs> All right, never mind. Yeah, the only other thing I've seen her in is Weekend at Bernie's, and this is a far cry from that. So. But regardless, you liked her performance in this. Uh, what about it was uh, cool? She played it very tough and straight. Like, she wasn't. She wasn't a stereotype, I would say, more like Sam was. Because they're supposed to be these valley girls who get caught, but I mean, it's like she's kind of more of just your average teenage girl in the movie. And she's a bit more of a, a tomboy. I would say she's tomboyish in the sense where she's not as ditzy or girly girly as her younger sister in this. One of the reasons I picked this movie, it has one of my favorite moments where a character, in this case, Samantha, the younger sister, the cheerleader type, when I started this movie, the first time I saw it, she annoyed the hell out of me in her first few scenes. I just was not behind her at all. Almost to the point where I thought, well, if she gets knocked off, I won't feel so bad because those ditzy characters are generally not to my taste. Uh, and this movie doesn't get super serious. It stays pretty middle of the road, maybe even lighthearted in parts. It examines more of the fun of what it would be like to be some of the few people left in the city. But by the end of this movie, her character really goes through the ringer as far as the emotions, dealing with the fact that everybody she knows is gone, and she really got me on her side. So her performance in this movie, uh, Kelly Maroney, the actress, her performance as Sam really stands out to me as being something really cool that there aren't a lot of movies where I start really hating a character and then loving them by the end of it. One of the things I think that helped me see her in a different light in this movie, you know, when they're at the radio station and she has those kind of like just back-to-back -back nightmares because the realization is really sinking in with her. Regina, from the beginning, is pretty much like, look, everyone's dust, you know? Like, she just knows. And, um... Sam's still kind of fighting it, but those nightmares were also, they were uncomfortable in this movie. Like, it was, this movie does have those uncomfortable moments, and those nightmares were definitely not pleasant. And I don't need this thing to be super realistic in its portrayal of a post-apocalyptic scenario. Because if it was, then it would just be a very depressing movie. So, Regina is somebody you would want on your team from the jump because she is so capable and she's got her head together. But really, people would probably behave more like Sam. They'd have their little freakouts. They'd be a little uh, listless at times, just thinking about all the things that have happened. So it's kind of nice that they bring it down a little bit to a, an emotional core using Sam. I think everyone at one point or another has thought like, oh, this is how I would survive a zombie apocalypse. And no, you wouldn't, you know, it's just, <laughs> let's just be honest here. So I did like how they made Sam the proxy for the, the audience where it's like, you know, you want to be Regina, but let's just face it, you're going to be Sam. But hopefully you come out of it also as tough as Sam. 
Yeah, and Sam isn't totally useless throughout the movie. She does get her act together. So she really does get to play a full range of things, whereas Regina is just sort of the rock and maybe has less to do as far as acting. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. Final thoughts about Night of the Comet? I think I just need to watch it a second time to get the full experience, because there is a lot going on with it. Sometimes these genre-hopping movies, I feel like I miss a lot in it. And so I think this is something I might have to watch again. There's a whole science subplot that is a bit convoluted to get into, but that's something where second or third viewing really helps uh, solidify more of the story. Yeah, there are moments near the end where you're kind of like, wait, for me, I was just getting a little, not confused, but kind of, I don't want to say everything felt shoehorned in, like it is organic, but at the same time, it's, it takes you very quickly out of zombie film into something almost entirely different, I feel. It keeps you a little off balance with all that genre happening, but at least it keeps it from, from getting boring. Oh yeah, no, you'll, you'll be entertained. So we go from Night of the Comet 1984 to 1985 with just one of the guys. So this movie is a great companion to a previous episode we did where Andrew selected Some Like It Hot, the gender-swapping flick. And this one, about 30 years after that, approaches it from the other side where a woman pretends to be a man. Specifically, uh, we have Terry Griffith, this high school senior who wants to enter a journalism contest, and she's not selected at her school, but there's a neighboring school that hasn't finished doing their submissions yet. So she decides to get enrolled at that school temporarily to submit an article, and she says one of the reasons why her article didn't get picked originally at her first school is because she's a girl, and there's sexism at play. She pretends to be a boy at the second school, and lo and behold, she gets rejected again. However, the journalism teacher says he'll give her a second chance, or him, him a second chance, to submit another article and stay in the competition. This one as well, Andrew, you had not seen before? No. I had actually never even heard of it before. Oh, great. Just one of the guys, Virgin. Well, I have a totally different experience to that. I remember seeing this on VHS when I was seven or eight years old, maybe ten at the latest. Oh my. I loved it, but obviously I couldn't enjoy it, all the layers to it, because I just wasn't mature enough. And I would catch it a lot on uh, Comedy Central, too, it would play. The main character, the main actress, Joyce Heiser, as Terry Griffith, she has a special place in my heart because I had a big crush on her from this movie when I was a little boy. But this was before puberty, so somehow I was able to enjoy her talents and think she was pretty without any sort of sexual component to it. So it always stands out in my mind whenever I think about this flick because, unfortunately, 
you know, being an adult now, there's no way that I could really have a crush on a woman and not have some sort of sexual component to it. I know it's it's unfortunate, but it was a simpler time back then. It was innocent love. I'm sure it was. Do you happen to have an example like that for yourself? I think I had the same first crush as a lot of 90s kids with the Pink Ranger. Also, Ferris Bueller, uh, his girlfriend in that movie, um, I think was my first movie crush. And uh, roughly how old were you? I don't remember when I first... I mean, (laughs) Power Rangers was when I was like, you know, really, really little. I just thought Kimberly was the prettiest. And then I think I saw Ferris Bueller for the first time maybe when I was in like third or fourth grade. Wow. Yeah, I thought like his girlfriend... Because it would play on TV a lot. It was like one of those movies that seemed like it was on every weekend. Oh, yeah. The actress's name is Mia Sarah, I think, but I don't remember what the character's name was. Sloan. Thank you, Sloan. And yeah, I thought Sloan was the prettiest. Is it a funny coincidence, though, that it's these 80s movies that we're referencing? I think... It's just what was on, right? Yeah, it's kind of just what we grew up watching. It was what was on TV, I think, the most. Maybe that's why I have a thing for brunettes. Since this was your first watch, how did it hit you? It was very... (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay. Okay. Let's get into it. (laughs) I'm going to... Okay. Because I know this is a recommendation show. No, you're allowed to hate it. I I don't know if I would recommend it. I don't hate it. Okay, what were your problems with it? It was very cringy. Really? I thought it was very cringy, dude. Like what parts? A lot. Like, (laughs) most. Damn. I think one of the things that surprised me the most, and, you know, you telling me the story, the fact that you watched this as a nine-year-old, I can think of two big reasons why you had a crush on this main actress. <laughs> when I think of the younger brother's bedroom, I, I just it's this movie has a lot of nudity in it. I, I mean, really, it has nothing else that I would say is really PG-13 worthy. Because I think if it didn't have the nudity, it would probably be a PG film. Well, no, there's a lot of like there's a lot of gross sex talk. I think that's what it is. It's like it's the precursor, I think, to the teen gross-out comedy like American Pie, you know, because you have this younger brother who's just, he's just trying to get laid because their parents are on vacation, and he's hard to watch at times just because it's like, dude, you're talking to your sister like that, man. But I will admit that was kind of the charming thing I liked about their relationship in the movie is it did feel authentic in the way that you know, he got on her nerves, but at the same time, you could tell that they got along. But yeah, there's a lot of nudity in this movie because there's just, he has Playboy pictures everywhere in his room and it's not like they're all out of focus or blurred. It's like, oh, there's full frontal of like three different women in one shot, you know? That was a little jarring for me. As far as live action nudity in the movie, there's only one shot. There's one shot where there's actual breastuses. I mean, but that's that's still... And it's at a crucial time in the movie, too. It's not gratuitous, man. Give me that much. It's not gratuitous, and I will say it is important. 
it's as important as it can be in the film. Well, so a little backstory on that. The actress had the right to refuse to do it. But the director, who was a woman, she felt that for the story, that was a moment where they needed some frontal nudity. So she asked the actress, look, can we shoot it? And if you hate it, we won't use it. But I think this is important. I think this is the best way to communicate. Because there's a moment toward the end of the movie where things are coming to a head and her real identity is coming out. And she's trying to convince this guy that she likes and has been hanging out with as a boy. Uh, she's trying to convince him that, like he says, she is not in fact gay, but actually a woman. And that's when we see the puppies. I mean, I guess it's just, it shocked me. I don't want to say shocked, that's a strong word. It's interesting to see a PG-13 movie with... I'm not exaggerating this. I would say that this movie has more... In terms of live action, you're right, it is pretty brief, but the pictures on the wall, it's almost like more nudity than a lot of R-rated films I've seen, so it's it's interesting where it's just kind of like, you are, like, I'm just, I'm thinking, like, you're watching this as a kid, like, as soon as your parents leave the house, you know? Was that how it was? No, not quite. Uh, it wasn't like I was showing my dad that scene as soon as I got to it. Like, hey, dad, I freeze framed this. Come check it out. <laughs> but I do recall this got through his censorship because it was PG-13. And I think he just didn't think there was going to be any real nudity in it. I don't know how it got through, but it did. And like I said, though, I remember it not just for the visual aspect of it, but also because maybe the first few years that I'd ever seen this movie uh, uncensored, it really didn't... Uh, yeah, sure, I, I thought it looked fair, but it was at a time where I just wasn't really thinking about it sexually. It was just kind of like, oh my god, you know, like in the story, she's revealed herself, and what a shock it is to the guy that she likes, you know, the big reveal. <laughs> I mean, you laugh, Andrew, and, and that is kind of the point, is that I, I wouldn't think like that nowadays. I can't think like that when I watch it now. But it would be nice to be able to just, you know, just objectively be able to look at it only as far as the story goes. And at some point, I was able to do that, so I give myself some credit. No, you should. I, I'm more laughing at the, you just called it the big reveal. Oh, it was. One of the best reveals in teen movie history. And it was only one shot, people. I can't stress this enough. Don't think of this as a very prurient scene. We see these two uh, pieces of evidence to her femininity a solid four seconds, and then it's over. Yeah, I mean, it's. I can understand the idea that it was like important to show it I don't want to sound like a prude. It's just, it's weird to me that I saw this much nudity in a PG-13 film. Yeah, those were the good old days in the 80s. <laughs> I really do wonder how this movie didn't get the R rating that I kind of feel like it deserves. In the pictures that her brother has hung up on his walls, there's a lot of them. In like a few of them, there's like, there's bush. It's just plain as day. <laughs> 
They were uh, big fans of Herbert Walker Bush. It was oh my goodness gearing up for the election. <laughs> yeah, this well, this predates him by quite a bit. It does by a few years at least. Well, it's funny you say that this is kind of a precursor to those raunchier movies of the '90s and early 2000s. Let's say. Because as I was watching it this time around, it felt like it was commenting on the 80s teen movie craze, such as all the naked women in the centerfolds in Buddy's room. I think one person might look at that and just go, oh, yeah, that's cool. I mean, you know, look at all those naked chicks. But it's also talking about this over-sexualization of women from a teen boy's perspective, and how through much of the movie, his subplot is that he just wants to have sex. He wants to lose his virginity. And the characters, his sister, his sister's friend Denise, they comment on the fact that, hey, this might not be too healthy. Maybe you should just kind of take it slow and find the right girl first. But of course, he's not listening to that. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. that I don't know how deep the commentary was supposed to be, though. Here's another little detail that I'm hoping will help my case. So there's a moment with Billy Zapka, the pinnacle of bully in 80s movies, this karate kid. But there's a moment where his girlfriend, Deborah, says that he's insecure and that's why he acts like this. And that seems like a little bit more character stuff than a lot of these teen movies would care to talk about, even in just a line. I do agree that there is always going to be some type of insecurity element to that bully-esque character. I think the movie does have some depth. I'm not saying that it's completely without it. I think it was just a little... The younger brother was a little overdone, although he was also kind of the character that made me laugh the most. So it wasn't like as soon as he was on the screen, I was upset. But when I laughed at him, when I was laughing at his antics, it was typically when he was being kind of like a cleaner character. When he was just being, you know, the shitty little brother, you know, it was just him. It wasn't him being a perv. It was just him being annoying as a sibling that kind of made me laugh the most. He has so many quotable lines. Can you think of any? I just watched this movie. Like, I just finished this movie 20 minutes ago. Well, not 20 minutes ago. I, I finished it like 20 minutes before we started recording. Yeah, like I do remember there were some of the things he said that were legitimately funny, and I can't think of any off the top of my head right now. And it sucks. There's a great scene where Terry first gets the idea to go and drag and she borrows some of her brother's clothes and she asks him for pointers. She asks, how do I stand? How should I talk? And he's helping her out and they're looking at a mirror together. He says, okay, I want to see you do something that all guys do. I want to see you scratch your balls. And they, they go back and forth a little and she says, well, no, nah, you know, I'm not going to do it. Maybe my balls don't itch. And he says, all balls itch. That's a fact. He had his moments. Like, he really did have his moments. Like, that was a great part. There's a line later. Because there's this uh, girl at this other high school that is really into Terry as a boy. 
and she's kind of the female equivalent of Buddy. She tries to get with Terry and fails, and then Buddy says, The closest I've come to sex was a girl who took her top off to seduce my sister. Yeah, he he does have his mo it's <laughs> I will say that the great thing about the eighties comedies is that there is still pretty clever dialogue in it. I do remember at one point, I know he's moping about not having sex and then like I think Terry said something along the lines of it's not a big deal. Like, oh it's not that big a deal and he did say like, Well, I'd like to form my own opinion about that. That was it's the stuff like that that I thought was pretty pretty hysterical it was the cleaner stuff and he says it so downtrodden and introspective when he wasn't being a complete perv it was a little bit better i want to feel this way partially because the director is a woman that we're not supposed to necessarily be rooting for him and his viewpoints i'm hoping his character is there for us to laugh at and say well yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things wrong with this kid. You must have known some guys in high school that thought about sex way too much, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's almost any guy in high school, really. I never really rooted for Buddy. It was more of... Because he was the cringiest character in the whole film. And I do think that that was the point of his character, was to be that kind of really desperate loser-esque character who is a little... Well, he's very inappropriate at times with the women. Almost putting Bud Bundy to shame with how inappropriate he can be. Well, I would say Bud Bundy, he gets a little uh, mean at times, whereas I think Buddy in this movie, he's always pretty affable. He never comes off as a total sicko. He's not a jerk, but he's definitely a perv. Yeah. Yeah. He's a teen boy. Yeah. Talking about the gender swapping stuff, how did you feel about Joyce Heiser's portrayal as Terry as a boy? I will say there were moments where she really, I would say, was passable. If I was a student at that school, I might not notice. There were certain shots where she wasn't wearing a big thick jacket where you could kind of tell like okay she has bosoms does she ever (laughs) oh gosh (laughs) but yeah you you could tell sometimes it was interesting because in a way i get that you know they wanted to it is one thing to say like oh there's sexism at play with her not getting the article pick everyone's kind of comically dismissive of her feelings and her dream to be a journalist especially her college boyfriend you know when she's telling him about her day and how badly she feels he's just like oh why do you double knot your bikini he's trying to take her top off in the pool or outside of the pool and at one point there are teachers like she overhears one of the teachers talking about her in a very inappropriate way and so it It's very much cemented that, like, it was kind of sexism at play. I think the casting choice was interesting because they went with someone who kind of had that 80s pinup, like that supermodel figure. Pretty darn voluptuous. I feel like 
with some like it hot, you know, with Tony Curtis posing as a woman, that's a beefy woman. I feel like they kind of went with almost too much of a supermodel for it to be a hundred percent passable because you could still see I'll say her bosoms again, because I'm trying to keep it clean. Like you can see her bosoms under her clothes still. You can't think of any other clean words for breasts. I could, but I, I don't know. Because I, I know I swore <laughs> earlier in the episode, but I also don't want to seem... You know, I don't want to say words that sound um, charged. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to be like, oh, her, you know, her fat cans. You know, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, she is kind of like one of those 1980s supermodels with the curves. And so with her passing as a guy... Maybe should have put her in bigger clothes or just more jackets, because sometimes you can still kind of see it. Yeah, and her voice wasn't very consistent. Hey, guys. You know, it's just, it was like she was doing an impression of a guy. She is passing as well as she can. The hair helped. I mean, honestly, that was a great hairstyle for her to have, because it was fashionable in the 80s as a good androgynous cut. So that was good. On the face of it, it's Terry dressing up as a boy and the antics she gets into therein. But did you notice it's also a thing where she's seeing other aspects of class and social strata? She starts the movie as the popular girl. She won't give the geeks the time of day. But then by the end of the movie, she's friends with those geeks and has a bit more appreciation for people other than her group of friends. She finally had those moments where she could see it from their perspective because she wasn't exactly super popular at the school where she's a guy because her first interaction there went horribly wrong because of Mr. Zabka. Sure, I've seen this movie way too much and I can't be entirely objective. However, another nice detail that I caught this time around. You mentioned earlier She's with her college boyfriend. It's right after her first article gets rejected at her first school. She's lamenting having trouble uh, reaching her dreams. And he's trying to undo the double knot of her bra. And she's not having any of it. She doesn't want any fun time at that moment. But at the end of the movie, her breasts become an important plot detail. And we go from beginning of the movie where... She doesn't want to have any of it. She doesn't like the fact that this guy is trying to take her bra off for her, or her, uh, the top of her swimsuit. But then at the end of the movie, what she do? She willingly exposes herself for true love. Nice moment, huh? You have seen this movie too many times. I have. <laughs> and I'll see it many more times. <laughs> <laughs> this watch, I noticed, ostensibly being a gender swap movie, it's really not about a woman seeing things from a man's perspective. What would you say it is? more about the class issue because even the guy that she starts to get a crush on when she's pretending to be a guy rick 
There are a few times in the movie where she's driving him because he doesn't have a car. She's got a credit card, and she's going to go out and help get him some new clothes because he can't afford it. And we see his house compared to her house. He's not living as good as they are because her house, they've got a pool. They have a big house, yeah. It's a little telling. I'm curious if it was on purpose, but the only part of her article that she writes about her experience as a guy, the only part we hear is during that scene at the locker with this guy that's hitting on her. And he mentions a part from the article that's something to the effect of, you don't need to have cool clothes to be a cool guy. And I kind of would have liked to hear more about that article, what she took out of pretending to be a guy. But even that line isn't about being a guy. It's about, you know, cliques and class. That is interesting. Like, I honestly didn't really kind of think of it from that perspective. Well, on your 50th watch, you'll think of it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I have a long ways to get till I'm on your level. Did you enjoy Zapka in this? He plays a good bully. I read a, an article about his career a little bit today, actually. It just, it's interesting how he was kind of typecast as that, you know, a-hole bully character. But he is an Academy Award nominee. For what? A live-action short film back in, like, the early thousands. He, like, wrote and directed and starred in it. It's nice to see him in this just because um, I'm a huge fan of the Cobra Kai series. It's kind of nice to see him in, like, his early years because it's, you know, the stuff I like him in the most is, like, the now that he's doing with Cobra Kai because that, that show's great. And as a bully in this movie, they gave him uh, a nice detail with the exercise stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he wasn't just a totally one-dimensional bad guy. They gave him a little something to play with. It, yeah, it was nice to have, for him to have a shtick other than just, you know, dick. I personally would not recommend this as a must-watch for 80s teen comedies. I would say it's a deep cut. I would give another list first before I gave this one. But if we're circling back to the premise of this podcast, uh, as far as Terry being a female protagonist in an 80s teen movie, do you think she does a pretty good job? Is she likable or were you annoyed by her? She was a likable character. Her wanting to do the gender swap thing. When she was first kind of playing with the idea in her head, the idea was just, oh, I think there's sexism afoot. And then she's talking to Buddy about it, and he's just telling her, ah, you can't do it. And so it's kind of one of those classic, you know, done-on-a-dare type films where she just kind of set out to prove a specific point, and then she got invested. I have to admit, one thing I really did like about the movie, when she talks to the first journalism teacher that she has, you know, when she mentions her article about nutrition, that sounds boring to us as the audience. At least I know it did for me. Because you see the other articles, and one of them's about drugs at the high school, and I don't remember what the other one was, but it's not nutrition. Like, certain implications were made, I think, by that teacher that it was... A gendered thing and so I really liked it when at the other school 
Mr. Mendoza, who I think is the true hero of the movie, told her outright, your article's boring. Like, it's well-written, but it's boring. There's nothing to sink your teeth into. So she learns that it's not about sexism. It really was just like she didn't have a good enough article, and it gave her more motivation to keep doing what she was doing because it was no longer, oh, I'm going to prove that it was just sexism, or I'm going to prove that, like, oh, you guys don't think I can pass. I'll show you I can pass. It was more of a mission to get the experience to be able to write the article that she wrote at the end of the film. So I did like that. I'd like to introduce you to a new segment I've been doing on this show, which is TLDL, Too Long Didn't Listen. Suppose you just want to know the bare facts and be on your way. Well, folks, this is the part you should be listening to. So I'm going to ask you some questions, and I want one-word answers, yes, no, an adjective. That way people can just get a really quick read on these two films from your perspective. All right, sounds fun. Which is a better date movie, Comet or Guys? Comet. Which protagonist did you like more, Regina or Terry? Terry. Is Night of the Comet more of a horror, sci-fi, or comedy? Sci-fi. Which sibling relationship did you like more, Regina's or Terry's? Terry's. Roughly, how many times did you laugh out loud at just one of the guys? Two. Roughly, how many times did you feel spooked or feel there were scary scenes in Night of the Comet? Zero, but I... I will preface this with an asterisk. I don't get jumpy at movies very often. Were you surprised at the lack of nudity in both of these movies? Live-action nudity. Did you say the lack of? Surprised at the lack of live-action nudity. No. Were you disappointed in the lack of nudity in these films? (laughs) What lack of nudity? (laughs) Um, no, I was not disappointed by a lack of nudity. Okay. And that's one of the reasons I would uh, recommend these movies, because they do a bit more than just try to show you skin. Especially the first movie, Night of the Comet. There's no actual full nudity at all in that movie, is there? Not that I remember. I mean, they come kind of close with some underwear situation, but nothing that feels particularly exploitative. I have to say, I'm, I'm surprised you liked Night of the Comet more than just one of the guys. I thought it would have been the reverse, but I guess we've found where my humor begins and yours ends. 